Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We are on our fifth and final sola of our Summer Reformation series. And so we're going to be talking about God's glory alone. The way this is going to work is this morning, I'm going to kind of give an introduction, kind of set the base for then Chris Reed to come next week and finish um, speaking on this topic and pick up where I leave off. But as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 6, I want to talk about one of my favorite subjects to talk about, one of my favorite things in the entire world, and that is chocolate. Anyone like chocolate? Amen, chocolate fans? Absolutely. Well, here's the thing. I know in a room this size with this many people that there has to be someone in here who has never tried chocolate, okay? There has to be someone who at some point in their life has never tried chocolate. Maybe that is you. But here's my point. If we started, if I started saying, what are the attributes of chocolate? And we just sat here and started listing the attributes of chocolate. I think even the people who have never tasted it could list some of those attributes. So let's take one for instance. Chocolate, at least milk chocolate, is sweet, right? We all agree with that, correct? Chocolate is sweet. Even if you have never tasted chocolate, you could know that. And here's why. Because you can know chocolate is sweet in two ways. You can know it with your mind or you can know it with your tongue. You can know it with your mind because even though you've never tasted it yourself, over and over again your entire life you have been told that milk chocolate is sweet. And so you believe it. And so if someone was to say that chocolate isn't sweet, you would argue with them because you know, because you have been told your whole life that chocolate is sweet. Or you can know that because you have experienced it for yourself. Why do I say that? That's a long, drawn-out way to make this point. That some of us, some of us have heard for years, heard our entire lives that God is glorious. We have heard over and over again from this stage, from, from podcasts, from, from just reading, over and over again, we have heard that God is glorious and we have heard about his glory. But for many of us, we've never actually tasted it. We've never actually tasted it. We would argue that God is glory, glorious, but we've never actually experienced it for ourselves. We've only been told. We only know it in our minds. We only know it in our heads, but it's never actually got to our hearts. And God's glory is never going to impact you. It's never going to change your life until you actually experience it for yourself and it becomes more than just knowledge. And so my prayer this week, what I'm hoping for this morning, is that as we look at the glory of God, we can experience it. We can taste it. We can taste the chocolate. We can taste the glory of God this morning. We can see what our Bible says about God's glory, and we can actually taste it. And so let me pray just to open us up, and then uh, we'll jump into the passage here in a second. So let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you um, for the opportunity that we have to gather here this morning just to worship you and to tell you how glorious you are, to tell you how wonderful you are, to celebrate how holy you are. I pray this morning as we look at this passage from Isaiah chapter 6 that you will speak through me and show us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I wanna go ahead before we look at our passage and go ahead and jump into point one for, our, for what we're gonna talk about this morning. Point one, and it's a question. It's a question. What is God's glory? What is God's glory? I'm gonna say that word over and over again this morning. And you've heard it, I'm sure, over and over again. Glory, God's glory. But have you ever really thought about what that means? What is God's 
glory. It's used often in the Bible. It's a huge theme in the Bible. It's a a word that us as Christians, we use often, but what is it? I'll start by saying this. The word glory, the word glory is impossible to describe with words. (laughs) It's impossible to describe with words. I've tried. I've tried this week to try to describe it with words, but it is absolutely impossible. The word glory, and this is what John Piper says, he points out that the word glory is a lot more like the word beauty than it is the word bicycle. It's a lot more like the word beauty than it is the word bicycle. Here's what I mean by that. If, I, if you had never seen a bicycle before in your entire life, I believe that I could stand up here and I could describe a basketball to you, or a bicycle to you. I could describe a bicycle to you and I could say that it has a seat and it has two handlebars and it has pedals and, and two wheels and a chain and I could even draw you a picture. And when you left here today, if you saw someone riding a bicycle down the street, you would look and say, that's that thing he was talking about. That's a bicycle, that's it right there. He described that, that's what that is. But let's think about the word beauty. How do I describe beauty with words? I can't, right? I can't describe beauty with words because there are some words in our dictionary, in our vocabulary that we communicate with not because we say them, but because we can see them. Not because we say them, but because we can see them. Here's what I mean by that. With beauty, you take, you you find something, you see something beautiful and you point at it. And you say, that's beautiful. You take a trip to the Grand Canyon, you stand on the edge, you look out, and you say, that's beautiful. You, you, you're getting ready for a date with your wife, and she uh, walks out of the bedroom, and she's ready to go in a brand new dress, and you say, honey, you look beautiful, right? You're watching a basketball game on TV, and you see LeBron James go to the basket, go up for a slam dunk, and you say, that was beautiful, And we sit there and we point and we say over and over again, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. And with all our pointing, we come up with a common sense of what beauty is. It's hard to define with words, but we can define it with our points. That's it, that's it, that's it. It's the same with the word glory. And the Bible gives us example after example of examples that we can point to and say, that's God's glory. That is God's glory. And so let's look at number one here. The first example I have, and I'll list a few here. The first example I have is from Psalm 19. Psalm 19, one, it says this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that God is shouting his glory at us. What is it? God is shouting it at us. He shouts it at us with a thunderstorm. He shouts it at us with clouds, with a beautiful sunset, with a solar eclipse, He's shouting it at us. He's shouting it at us with the vast universe that he created that Isaiah 40, 12 says he is holding in his hand. God is shouting, I am glorious when we look up into the heavens. But it's not just the heavens that declare his glory. The earth declares his glory. This is what John Calvin says, one of the reformers that we'll be studying on Wednesday night. He says, the little birds that sing, sing of God. The beasts clamor for him. The elements dread him. The mountains echo him. The fountains and flowing waters cast their glances at him. And the grass and flowers laugh before him. The earth declares God's glory. The earth declares his glory. The heavens declare his glory. The earth declare his glory. And he is sovereign, completely sovereign, over every star in the sky 
in every grain of sand on every beach in all the earth. He is sovereign. And so we point to the heavens, we point to the earth, and we say, our God is glorious because he created this. It is declaring his glory. He shouts his glory at us through his creation. So that's one way we see, we point and say, that is God's glory. Another example that we see is in our Bibles. It's the passage we're gonna read today. Isaiah chapter six, and we're gonna start with verses one through five. Isaiah six, verses one through five. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's break this down. And I want to start in verse 1. Verse 1. Isaiah going to start this passage by telling us about the year that he saw the Lord. The year that he saw the Lord. And we know that this year would have been around 740 B.C. 740 B.C. Now, how do we know that? We know that because he says it was in the year that King Uzziah died. That doesn't mean anything to us, right? We're 21st century Americans. The year that King Uzziah died doesn't register with us. But we can take that, and to, to, to understand it a little bit better, we can take that and we can replace it with the national tragedy that we have experienced. It was the year of 9-11. It was the year uh, JFK was assassinated. It was the year of Pearl Harbor. It was a national tragedy, because we know about King Uzziah from the book of 2 Chronicles. And we know that for at least most of his reign, he was a very good king, and God blessed him. And God blessed the country under his reign. And he reigned for 52 years. 52 years. We're used to a president reigning or, or leading us for four years to eight years. But King Uzziah reigned for 52 years. And then he dies. Then he dies. It would have felt like everything was coming unglued. It would have felt like everything was coming unglued. Maybe the way it feels for some of us right now, right? In our current context, it would have felt like everything was coming undone. But Isaiah makes a point. Isaiah makes a point that even when the king dies, there is a real king who is still on his throne. Even when everything seems like it is coming unglued, there is a king that is glorious, that is on his throne and will never die and will always be on his throne and he is glorious and he is holy. And that's the king we're gonna talk about this morning. Let's talk about that king. Let's talk about the glory of that king. Let's talk about his glory. What we see first about his glory in this passage is that his glory is tied to his holiness. His glory is tied to his holiness. Holy literally means set apart. And I love that song we just sang because we just declared it, right? That he is holy. He is set apart. What we were declaring is that he is great. He is worthy. He is perfect, right? He is infinitely great, infinitely perfect, infinitely worthy. He has never had a wrong thought. 
He has never had a wrong motive. He has never done a wrong deed. He is 100% completely pure. And that holy God that we just sang about, I could stand up here and I can use all the words in our vocabulary to try to describe that God, and I am always gonna come up completely short. I have tried so hard this week to fit in every adjective I possibly can for God, and I am always just gonna be left frustrated because I can never capture his glory, ever. But that's a great thing. <laughs> that's a great thing. Because if we had a God that we could describe in human words, then that God is too small to be worshiped. <laughs> He's too big to describe with human words. But if we could do that, then he is too small to be worshiped. But we can't. I can't even scratch the surface today. I can't even, even get close to describing his glory with words. But these seraphim today, these angels, they tried, right? They tried. And they're worshiping God. And they cried out, holy, holy, holy. Now, these aren't little angels, uh, the, the angels that we imagine, the little babies with wings playing harps, singing holy, holy, holy. These are the seraphim, right? It means fiery ones, right? You saw the description of them. And they are screaming out, holy, 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 holy. Now, in Hebrew, to say something over again is to show the magnitude of it. If you repeat something, you are showing the magnitude of it. So if you were on a cruise ship, and you were standing on the back of the cruise ship, and the water is really blue. You could look to your friend and say, that water is blue, blue. And that would mean that that water is really blue in Hebrew. But usually you only repeat it once. But here we see these seraphim, and they are saying, holy, not once, not twice, but three times. He is holy, 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 as if to say he is the holyest. He is the holiest. We, just, we would repeat it a million times if we could, but he is holy, holy, holy. That shows the magnitude of his holiness. But look what it says next. We would expect that it would say, he is holy, 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 and the earth is filled with his holiness, right? He's holy, 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 and the earth is filled with his holiness. But instead, they say, he is holy, 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 and the earth is filled with his glory, the earth is filled with its glory. And this tells us a lot about God's glory. John Piper says this. He says, this passage tells us that the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way God puts his holiness on display. So God's glory displays for us that he is holy. He is set apart. He is infinitely beautiful. He is pure perfection. He does all he pleases he is self-sufficient, he is self-existent, and he is omnipotent. And our words to describe his greatness are always going to come up short. Always. You feel the weightiness of that? You feel the weight of that? How holy he is? How glorious he is? Well, I hope you do, because the word glory in Hebrew literally comes from the word weighty. It's God's weightiness. It's his, his weightiness. And so the Bible is telling us that God is weightier than everything else. Paul picks up on this in the New Testament. He says that, uh, he talks about an eternal weight of glory, right? An eternal weight of glory. Glory is God's weightiness. And so I want to keep thinking about his, his glory as weight. And this is going to take us to point two. How does God's glory affect my life? How does God's glory affect my life? How does his weightiness affect 
my life. Let's continue talking about glory as weight, and I'll give you an illustration. I'm going to go ahead and give Tim Keller credit for this. He's a, a pastor, an author um, in, in Manhattan. Look him up. Awesome. But I was really struggling with, with what the implications of um, for God's what the implications were of God's glory in our lives. And this picture he gave really helped me. And some of these points, he helped me. So I want to give him credit. Um, but let's imagine, let's think of an illustration here to think of God's glory. Let's imagine that you were standing on the top of a cliff. Okay, You're standing on the top of a cliff and you are looking out into this, this vast lake. And this lake, beautiful blue lake. It's very deep, uh, deep enough where you could go and jump off of, no problem. And you're standing on top and you see this big boulder. And this boulder somehow has gotten into a position where you can tell if you got behind it and gave it a good push, it would start rolling. And it would roll and it would plummet off that cliff and go into the lake. And so you say, okay, well, that's what I want to do. And so you get behind that, that, that big boulder and you and some friends, you give it a push. And that boulder starts rolling off that cliff and it goes off and it plummets into the water. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? The rock is going to cause a waterquake, right? I'm going to use that word, a waterquake. We've heard of an earthquake. It's going to cause a waterquake. The, the weight of the rock is going to go into that water, and the water is going to quake. It's going to ripple. We're going to see waves come out of the lake. Why is that? Because the rock is weightier than the water, correct? That was an extreme example. You can take a little stone, throw it into the water, and it's going to create ripples because the rock is weightier than the water. When something weightier goes into something lighter, we get a waterquake or we get an earthquake, right? So look at what we see here in Isaiah 6. The glory of God comes down in verse 4. And what happens? The, founda the foundations shake. The foundations shake. When God's presence comes down, there is an earthquake because of the glory of God. Because God is weightier than everything else. And so when something weightier comes into something lighter, you get a quake. And we see God come to earth and we see an earthquake. The foundations shake. So that leads me to a question. And this question is going to seem like it's coming from out of left field, but, but bear with me. Here's my question. Is God a reality to you? or only a concept? Is God a reality to you, or only a concept? And here's why I ask that. How do you know? How do you know if he's a reality to you, or only a concept? Because if the glorious, holy, omnipotent God that we've been talking about this morning comes into your life, you're going to have a life quake. You are going to have a life quake. If that God comes into your life, it's no, more, it's no more possible for you not to have a life quake than it is for that rock to plummet into that lake and for there not to be even a ripple. If God, the God, if the true God from the Bible that we've been talking about this morning comes into your life, if he is a part of your life, then it is going to shake everything up. It is going to totally change your life. You are going to have an absolute life quake. But unfortunately, many of us never actually experience God as a reality. We never experience him as a reality. We only experience him as a concept. And we take him and we make him a concept that is lighter than us. We make him a concept that is lighter than us. And a God who is lighter than you has absolutely no effect on your life whatsoever. 
A God that is lighter than you has no effect on your life whatsoever. When God is just a concept, you rob, you rob him of his weight. You rob him of his weight. When God is just a concept, he won't change how you treat your spouse. He won't change how you work. He won't change anything because you can make him whatever you want him to be, right? He can be the genie that grants all your wishes. He can be the Stepford wife that submits to you. He can be the, the, the grandfather figure that's always there to encourage you and never there to tell you anything wrong, right? C.S. Lewis makes a, a great point. He says that we all want God to be our grandfather, but none of us want God to be our father. Catch that? What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, if you're a grandfather or a grandmother, you know the difference, okay? When I was growing up, my dad always loved me and he always supported me. But he also called me out when I was wrong, and he corrected me. Then I would go to Mama and Papa's house, and I could get away with murder, because they had already raised four kids, right? They had already raised four kids, so all I got from them was encouragement and love, and they fed me as much as I wanted, and they bought me stuff. That's all I got from them. So we all want God to be our grandfather, but none of us want, us to be, want him to be our father, right? But that's God as a concept, that's taking God and making him into an image that we are comfortable with. But that's what we want. We want God as a concept. And that is why you see so many Christians who know God, who know about God. They know everything about God, but their life looks no different than the unbelievers around them. Because God is just a concept to them. God's never been a reality to them. He's just a concept to them. And they take him and they make him to whatever they want him to be to fit in their life and keep themselves comfortable. But if you're doing that, if you're doing that, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. You are not worshiping that God that we sang about before I came up here. You are not worshiping that holy, set-apart God. You are worshiping a concept, a God that you made in your image. You are worshiping a concept, a God that you made in your image. Think of other implications of that. Think about his word right? Think about his word. Pastor Joe did an amazing job the last two weeks showing us that these are the words of God. We believe that God wrote a book. <laughs> we believe that God is the author of this book. But if he's just a concept to you, what's that mean for this? You can take out what you like and use it. You can throw out what you don't like. You can make this fit whatever you want it to say. But I think St. Augustine nailed it when he said this. He said, you, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and you reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. If God is, not a, if God is just a concept to you, that's going to have implications to every area of your life. You're going to take what you like in here and the parts you're uncomfortable, you're going to throw them out. But God's not just a concept. He is a reality. He is a reality. And here's the thing. You are one of 7.5 billion people on earth. I am one of 7.5 billion people on earth. A microscopic little dot in the universe that God holds in his hand. Who are we to tell him what we want and what we don't want? <laughs> Who are we to tell him, I'm going to accept that and I'm going to throw that out, what you said. Who are we to make him our assistant? He's the God of the universe and we're one of 7.5 billion people on earth, and we're trying to control him. But you can't control the God of the Bible. <laughs> you can't control the God of the Bible. You can't control the glorious God that we've been talking about. Let's move on to our third and final point. We're going to look at, at verse 5. We're going to talk about the problem of glory. 
the problem of glory. This is what verse 5 says. It says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What do we see here? We see that God's glory is terrifying. God's glory is absolutely terrifying. That's not one you hear often, right? We don't like to think of God as terrifying. When's the last time on K-Love Radio you heard a song about God being terrifying, right? You can buy a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, but you can never find a shirt that says, Jesus is terrifying, right? That's not one that anyone would buy. But God's glory is terrifying. God's glory is terrifying. We saw earlier that the angels have to cover their faces because of his glory. We saw earlier that even the pillars shake in fear. Even the pillars shake in fear. And what does Isaiah say when all this is going on? He doesn't say, neat, wow. He says, woe is me. That's a curse. He cursed himself. Woe is me. I am undone. He says, I'm done for. I am absolutely done for. I am ruined. I am ruined. That's his reaction. And so we have to ask, why is God's glory so terrifying? Because Isaiah is one of the good guys. He's a messenger of God. He's a prophet. Why is God's glory so terrifying? And I'll give you three things really quick, and then we're going to close. First of all, God's glory is terrifying because any greatness at all is terrifying. Any greatness at all is terrifying. Have you ever been in the room with someone great outside of Pastor Sam Polson? Have you ever been in the room with someone who is great? Have you ever had that experience? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience? You're standing in this room with something, someone great. I'll tell you, here's, here's the one example that I can think of in my life. I was in fourth grade, and I had the opportunity to meet the President of the United States, who at that point was George W. Bush. And we are, me and my dad had to wait in this long line to eventually meet uh, the President. So I remember we're, we're weaving in and out of these hallways, and, and I, can, I can hear things going on. I can tell that he's in this room, but I can't see him. And then finally, we turn this corner, and there he is, the president of the United States. This man who, who a year before that I had seen standing at ground zero, you know, giving a speech on 9-11. This man who is one of the most powerful men in all the world, and I'm standing there, and he is waiting to talk to me, a little fourth grader. And if you have ever been in that situation, you know that it is a weird feeling. Because on one end, you're standing there and you want to go closer because it's so glorious, right? You want to go closer because of the power. You want to go closer because of the beauty. But really, you want to turn and just run the other way as fast as you possibly can because greatness is terrifying, right? And when you see the greatness of this human position, this, this president of the United States, it made me want to turn around and run. But what's the president of the United States to the king of kings, right? What's the president of the United States to the king of kings? When you see greatness of any kind, it's terrifying. But when you see the greatness of God, that is terrifying, right? That is really terrifying. Next, God's glory is terrifying because it reveals that even our strengths that we boast in aren't really strengths at all. Even our strengths aren't really strengths at all. This is what we see with Isaiah. Isaiah realizes next to the purity of God that he is an unclean man. But did you notice what aspect of himself that he pointed out? I am a man of unclean lips. Now, 
What's Isaiah's job? He's a prophet, right? He gives messages. That's what he does. His lips are his strength. That's what God uses him for, to, to, send, to give messages with his lips. Yet he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Even my strength is a weakness compared to God. Even my strength is a weakness compared to God. Tim Keller says this, the holiness of God doesn't make Isaiah ashamed of his weaknesses. It makes him look at his strengths and realize that they aren't strengths at all. That's what happened to Martin Luther. We've talked a lot about him being the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. He was a very good guy. And this is what I mean by that. He was a monk before his conversion. And he, his job was to be good. And he was really good at it. He was really good at being good. He said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But Luther couldn't ignore God's terrifying holiness. When he saw God's holiness, he realized that even the good he's done, even his strength being good would never be good enough. He was still unclean compared to a pure God. Luther once described God's holiness like this. He says, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this or I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Let me go to the last, last thing here, last thing. God's glory is terrifying because it shows us how far we fall short. Martin Luther saw that. He saw how far he fell short. God's glory shows us how far we fall short. Romans 3.23 says clearly that each of us, all of us, have fallen short of the glory of God. And Isaiah 6 shows us that we don't just come up a little bit short. <laughs> we are light years short. We are light years short. We see the holiness of God and realize that there is nothing that we can do to make up that distance. We are running on a treadmill going nowhere. We cannot make up that distance when we see our sinfulness and we see his holiness. And that's hard to understand for many. That's hard to understand for many because we don't truly understand how severe our sin really is. We don't understand it. And the reason we don't understand is because the magnitude of the, it's not, our sin is not severe because of the magnitude of the sin. Okay? Our sin is not severe because of the magnitude of the sin. Our sin is severe because of the magnitude of who the sin is against. And that's why we don't always understand how severe our sin is. For example, if you sin against a rock, who cares? You're not guilty. If you sin against a man, you are guilty. If you sin against an infinitely holy God, you are infinitely guilty and deserving of infinite death. It's not about the magnitude of the sin. It's about the magnitude of who the sin is against. And that is absolutely terrifying because we have sinned against a perfectly holy God. So what do we do? What do we do? Let's look at verses six and seven. It says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. 
How is that possible? How is that possible? How can an infinitely holy and just God look at Isaiah and say, your guilt's taken away? That's scandalous, right? That is scandalous. A just God has to punish sin. Well, the answer is there in verse seven in that word, atoned for. Your sin has been atoned for. The only answer is for God himself the holy, set-apart, awesome, amazing God that we have sung about and talked about this morning, the only answer is for that God to take the punishment of sin for us, to take our place. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. The only answer is Jesus. And Isaiah tells us about it in Isaiah 53. So just listen to this. We'll close with this. Listen to these words that Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53. This is talking about Jesus. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, take some time to think about what we're celebrating. That God, the God of the Bible, the glorious, holy God, loved us and was willing to take on flesh, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and then shed his blood for us and die the death that we deserve so that in Jesus we can spend eternity with him. That's what we're celebrating. You see the weightiness of that? You see the magnitude of that? That the glorious God that we've been talking about this morning would do that for us sinners. Let me pray and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that, that you are a holy God, that you were set apart, that you are perfect. You have never had a wrong thought. You've never done a wrong deed, but that you look on sinners like us. You look on sinners like us and see all the mistakes we've made, see how we turned our backs and ran from you, sinned against you, yet you were willing to send your son to die in our place. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.